So please let yourself find your way back to sit in a way that's comfortable and at ease. People seem to be having a good time tonight. Sorry to kind of ruin the party, what can I say? It's springtime, you know. There are, there are two different dimensions to meditation practice. There's lots and lots of kinds of meditation, of course, um, in the world, contemplations and visualizations and mantras and mindfulness and so forth. Um, but to simplify some things, there's a, there's a dimension of meditation practice in which you train yourself to see clearly or to see in a new way. You train your capacities for presence or openness or resiliency or steadiness or clarity and so forth. Um, There's a kind of developmental dimension of it and that's been the kind of thing that neuroscientists have been happily researching over the last few decades. Um, And then there's another dimension of meditation Uh, which is more an invitation to mystery. And it's not about self-improvement. And it's not, you know, therapeutic in that kind of more limited sense. I don't know, sitting here, I'm I'm remembering somebody who's been in the community, (coughs) was in the community for 25 years and died a year or so ago, Lisa Hamburger, and she was the primate keeper at the San Francisco Zoo for many, many years. And I remember going down and visiting her and having her introduce me to the chimps, you know, by name. And then she said, you know, I actually brought my daughter and some other kids. Would you like to meet the gorillas? Mm -hmm. Of course, you know, who wouldn't want to meet a gorilla? Depends where, of course, right? But anyway, she says, well, the way you meet a gorilla is you... First of all, you kind of sidle up, don't kind of confront them head on, and you keep your eyes lowered, that's respectful. And then if you want their attention, you clear your throat, <clears throat> like that. <laughs> so she instructed us and the little kids I had with us, and there are the gorillas in their enclosure, you know, the big silverback male and the other, you know, gorillas and so forth. And people are walking by, you know, and they're just ignoring them. They're, they're, they're having their gorilla life in that limited space anyway. And so we sidle up, these little kids and I, um, eyes downcast, and then we go, <clears throat> <clears throat> and they look up like you want something, and they walk over, you know, and then she introduces us to them and so forth. So... Um, it's an amazing thing to be born on planet Earth and be a human being. It is. And we tend to lose sight of it and take it for granted in a variety of ways that, you know, we have our to-do list and we have our obligations and our finances and our work and family and so forth. But one of the beautiful things about meditation practice is that it opens us to something that's always present, but that we lose sight of this mystery of just being alive here on the earth. And then people talk about enlightenment and awakening, and I'm not sure I like the word enlightenment very much. It's a Victorian translation that's not very good for the words that actually are there in Sanskrit. Um, And it makes it seem like there's a few people in the Himalayas, if you're lucky, (laughs) right, that you you might meet or become or something. Um, A better word is awakening. Um, which is to awaken to where we are and who we are. And maybe another good word is wonder, you know, in the good sense, not wondering, but 
to see the world with a sense of wonder. So one of the conversations that we have as teachers periodically, we get these various lamas and swamis and mamas and meditation teachers together, and the question often is, what changes people? What awakens them in their spiritual life? And I've certainly reflected on it in my, my own life, because sometimes there's the gradual school and sometimes there's the sudden awakening. We all know about the sudden school because everybody's had those kind of experiences. In fact, there was a study that was done, a sociological study, that showed that the majority of Americans have had mystical experiences, and they wouldn't want them again. (laughs) And partly that's because there's no cultural context for that opening when you're sitting there at the bedside of someone who is giving birth, or you're giving birth yourself, or when you're sitting by the bedside of someone who's dying, or when you're walking in the mountains and all of a sudden you feel part of the earth in a way you never usually do, or walking by the ocean or listening to some amazing music or making love or taking some sacred medicine or whatever it is that works for you. Come on, let's be real here, right? You know. Yeah, but there's somehow like a breaking of the spell of ordinariness. Carl Sagan, the the great science educator, was asked. He said, or he said it this way. He said, if you want to make apple pie from scratch, you have to start with the Big Bang, right, and make a universe, and then you get all the apples and things coming out of that. Um, So the sudden school says that there is a grace that happens, a moment, sometimes many moments at different times. Um, And um, what we do in some way is to, our practice is to allow ourselves to be present in such a way that that the gates of eternity open for us. And of course, eternity isn't somewhere else in the Himalayas or next year or after a lot of, you know, meditation. It's actually timeless and vast right now as we are. Um, And so we know this in some way. Somebody said, actually, enlightenment is an accident and meditation makes you more accident prone, right? (laughs) Something like that. Practice makes you accident prone. Um, And I remember being with uh, various teachers that I've studied with and talked some about my own practice this evening and teachers. I was with an old guru in Bombay named Nisargadat Maharaj, who was in the Ramana Maharshi Advaita Vedanta tradition. And I remember being enormously happy. I was staying in this funky little hotel, um, and I would go to see him. He lived in Cape Vadi, which was not a particularly nice part of Bombay or anything, a little apartment there and so forth, and I'd ride the double-decker buses. And I was so happy. And I was so happy because I would sit with this man, And um, he would say, who do you think you are? You know, and you could answer that on whatever level you want. Here's my wallet, my name, my, you know, my background. He said, yeah, but who are you really? And people would, you know, so he'd have you inquire in that. And then people would say, well, who do you think you are? Even asking that question to us, you know, he he liked a little Dharma combat. (laughs) He did. And he'd say, He'd say, you're pointing to me as if you think I'm this body. I have nothing to do with this body. Well, aren't you afraid to die? He said, death. He said, that's just the food body. This body is made of japatis and, you know, gulab jamun and dal. And you think I am dal and gulab jamun? That is not my nature. You know, I am pure awareness. I'm loving awareness. I was never born. This body is just an expression of consciousness itself which is what we all are. And then he'd look at you and say, so do you get it, you know? And of course people would ask him a thousand questions because they didn't just stop and open, although you would at moments, and I did. Um, um, And it was a really beautiful thing to be in the presence of somebody who basically would look at you and say, you are loving awareness, that's who you are. And then you have your dramas of your life, and that's a fine thing, you know, enjoy them or not as you wish. Um, but that's not your true nature. 
And people would say, well, how did you, how did you come to live in this great free state that he seemed to be in? And he said, well, I had a fine teacher um, who seemed to be very wise, and he told me I was loving awareness, timeless and unborn, and I believed him. <laughs> but it doesn't require even that kind of teacher, again, walking in the mountains or making love or some amazing piece of music, and the sense of self, which is really kind of tentative, okay, we have our story and our roles and our work and our, you know, relations and so forth, all which need to be respected, but they're temporary. You know, they're an act, if you will. You rent the body for a while from Avis, you know, you have to take care of it, not dent it up too much, and then you return it. I mean, that's how it works. Isn't that wild? I mean, it's wild that you think that you're something that's temporal, but who you are, what's the spirit that came into this body? Who are you really? What are we? So, sudden awakening. But it turns out that sudden awakening, that whole school of spiritual life, also needs gradual training. It's not the cause of it exactly, but it's a way of fulfilling or embodying or living what we know to be true. And so the Buddha also spoke as well as seeing the mystery and realizing that you are life. You're, you're not just a part of life, you're life expressing itself through your own body and mind. Um, and therefore you, you can't die. Your body will die for sure. But you'll see, actually, when it happens. You drift out, float out of your body, there's this whole sense of light. You might have the tunnel, you might not, but there'll be this whole sense of drifting out of your body and saying, wow, that was a wild one, wasn't it, that incarnation? Hmm, you know, you'll see. Remember, as I said, remember, I told you so. Okay, right? Anyway. So, but it turns out that for the ripening of the heart and the embodiment, it also requires the repetitive turning of the heart or consciousness toward kindness, toward letting go, toward presence and wakefulness and compassion. Um, there's some part of us that longs to remember who we are. It's like going home, going home to our true nature, our Buddha nature. And sometimes it happens in a shock, you're in an accident, or there's some great loss, or some great blow in your life, and you go, wait, it's not the way that I thought it was. Who am I now? Who will I be when everything has changed? And sometimes in this mysterious way, it's um, not about some big experience. It's just you're tending to... You're tending to the heart. Somebody says, what is dharma? Dharma is a Sanskrit word that means the teachings or the truth. Um, but more fundamentally, dharma is a word. Dharma means the heart. And what state is the heart? Is it open? Is there a sense of um, presence, of love, of mystery, or not? Um, and that grows in you as soon as you hear that first kind of voice inside of longing to remember. A friend of mine, who is a well-known Buddhist teacher, says, I used to judge myself a lot. Here I am, this meditation teacher for hundreds and hundreds of students, many of whom have these great meditative openings, but that hasn't been my way. For a long time this was really hard for me to accept that nothing happened. I'm not a person with big dramatic experiences. For 30, now, 30 years now, it's simply been a process of practicing kindness and attention and presence without being caught by some idea of discouragement or success. I would go for months of intensive training and no spectacular experience would happen. This was especially hard for the first 10 years. 
But at least I never got trapped into believing I was some special spiritual person. Yet somehow something did change. And what most transformed me were the endless hours of mindfulness and loving kindness, giving a caring attention to whatever I was doing. I learned that the inner of dropping of burdens was not going to happen for me all in one piece, but again and again. I simply dropped the burden of judgments of myself and others, my fear, distrust, tightness in body and mind. As soon as the tightness would come and grasping, I started to notice it and let go and open to gratitude, appreciation, and inner freedom. And the teachings began to dawn on me, there's nowhere else to be, no coming and going. From the ground of being, nothing ever really happens. We're just here in the center of it all. Seeing this was a confirmation of what I already knew. I became less serious, less self-concerned. My kindness deepened. Oddly enough, my friends tell me I've become more and more like myself. They say there's been a very big change in me, but it wasn't produced by some special event. I guess it's just the fruit of bringing the heart and mind here, present over and over again. It's that simple. Sometimes you read about spiritual practice as a kind of awakening of the kundalini and the opening of the chakras and stuff, which happens, and it's very cool when it happens and so forth. Um, and then you get, you know, the power chakra open and the heart chakra and the throat chakra and the third eye opens and then the crown chakra to, you know, divine, whatever it does, actually. And, um, it's very, it's what, kind of wonderful. Um, goes away too, but that's another story. Um, my experience in practice has been, rather than doing that, has actually been kind of working my way down through the chakras. And I started with some big experiences that came by grace and other causes. Um, and, uh, <laughs> and, um, and then really began to look at spiritual life and read and study, and it was as if my mind opened up to what was possible. But then I realized it wasn't enough to know it and understand it. I actually had to feel it. And so after 10 years of like the mind and the head and all that opening, it was more like emotional work. Could I love? Could I forgive? Could I um, attend? Could I be intimate with myself and others? Um, the work of the heart. And then I realized that I had somehow left something else behind, you know, oh, my body, right? So it's time to kind of bring that same attention back to how I walk and how I treat my body and how I live and move through this world. Um, I don't know where it goes from down, down from there, maybe back to the earth or something like that. But there's some way in which it seems like the spiritual journey is as much a journey of becoming who we are and accepting it and living in it and saying, what a great dance we've been given. And we're all characters, you know that. Or you haven't looked in the mirror recently, right? Um, but what does it mean to honor that, this particular life, and then to do something beautiful with it, with body and heart and mind? Now, what also helped change me was meeting a teacher that inspired me. Um, and I met my teacher, Ajahn Chah, who was kind of the main teacher, and I think of all of the many wonderful teachers I've been with. He lived in a forest monastery in the border of Thailand and Laos, and I got to meet him because I asked the Peace Corps to send me to a Buddhist country so I could go train in a monastery. I'd been studying that in university. Um, and Ajahn Chah was this really wonderful and interesting person because he was extremely present and very spacious in some way, but also very demanding in his presence. He would kind of peer at people like a watchmaker taking on, saying, hmm, I wonder what makes that one tick, right? And I remember when I first came and he said, ah, what are you here for? I mean, and it wasn't a confrontation. It was like, okay, what's the deal? What actually did you come here for? And when I ordained, after I got to know him and decided I would be a monk in his temple, and I arrived, 
you know, to go through this whole monk's ordination ritual and so forth. One of the things he said, I hope you're not afraid to suffer. It's like his greeting. I said, hmm, now why would he say that? So I asked him, of course. And he said, well, there's two kinds of suffering. The kind you run away from that follows you everywhere. And the kind that you turn around and face that leads you through the gateway of your own freedom. And we're interested in the second kind here. If you want that, come on in, you know, basically. So he was looking for a kind of courage. He had a great warmth and a, a tremendous sense of humor and a kind of directness. You know, somebody would get angry. He said, hmm, angry today? And he would just smile. How's that working for you? You know, that was all. He had not a lot of judgment. Um, and his fundamental teaching was you can notice how you get caught in the small sense of self, the stories you tell, the ways that you hold on to things. And when you notice that, you'll see there's a lot of suffering. Or you can let them let it go. So if somebody seemed unhappy, he'd say, um, you suffering today? And if you said yes, he would say, hmm, could be that you're attached to something. And just smile and walk away, you know. Or if you said, no, I'm doing fine, he'd say, oh, good, have a nice day. I mean, his teachers were really simple, but he was tuned to what was happening. He was tuned to people. And he did with tremendous amount of jo- kind of dharma joy and so forth. And he just wouldn't get hooked by things. He had, we had a certain discipline and a way of living that he loved and we did. But I remember um, after my generation, which I was one of the first Westerners to be there, along with a friend, Ajahn Sumedho, um, Westerners started to come to be with him because he was a very charismatic teacher. And there was a nun, he started a monastery about two, ten miles away from the main one, just for Westerners, where the language was English and um, monks and nuns were training. And there was a Western woman who was a uh, very devoted and became a nun and lived there for five years and learned the local Lao language and was helping to be, teach the others who came and so forth. Well, after about five years, um, she went to the abbot there and said, I'm done, didn't explain why, and just left. And people were a bit crestfallen. She came back a year later. She had been converted to evangelical Christianity, um, born again, and was quite adamant that other people had missed the path and came to convert people. And so she was back in the monastery with her skills in Lao and Thai and so forth. And all these people who had admired her, and she's telling them that Jesus is the way, which could be, you know, anyway. So she's telling them that. But it upset the villagers who'd built this temple for all these Westerners thinking they were getting nice Buddhists out of it, right? And they knew her well, and here she's trying to do this conversion thing, and not to speak of her colleagues, the former monks, or her, form, her former colleagues, the, the remaining monks and nuns. So after a while, everybody got upset, and they said, we have to go talk to the master, Ajahn Chah. And they, so they all took the walk through the forest to 10 miles over to the main monastery, sat down, paid their respects, and said, you know, it's really... He said, how are things going? He said, well, it's really tough over there. This woman, who he knew very well, who'd been a nun, she's back. He said, I've heard. And she's trying to convert everybody and saying that Jesus is the way and, you know, you have to understand and all this. And they're all terribly upset. And what should we do about it? And he sat there for a moment and he smiled and he said, maybe she's right. (laughs) And the minute he said it, it's like took the air out of everybody's you know, righteous balloon. It's okay. It's another opinion. Opinions are just opinions. Thank you very much. Go back to your monastery and practice. You know, we hired her for you to have a little training, right? Like that. So there is some ground of non-clinging, of presence, of openness. Ajahn Chah was like this big tree he used to talk about. And, you know, he said, Fruit, birds come and nest, people come to the monastery. I'm just here, he said, and I love being here, and it's totally fine, and um, whatever comes, easy come, easy go. Um, And you could feel it in him, uh, a ground of both compassion 
and understanding. And then he would say, why don't you live this way? And there's something about um, someone asking that question, why not? You know, why not let go? Why not love more fully? Or why not quiet your mind and open your heart? Why not remember that you're loving awareness? You could, you know. So that, you know, he and the various teachers that I was fortunate enough to be with somehow opened me to realize that there was another way to be. And then, just talking about things that have in some way inspired or served my own path, and maybe as you listen to it, you can reflect on what's served you, what helps remind you, what gives you a sense of freedom or ease or joy in the very life you have. Because you could have it, you know, just where you are. It's not going to be anywhere else, by the way, just in case, you know, that little voice comes and says it. Um, It also was a tremendous blessing to hear the formal teachings of Dharma. Dharma, again, meaning the Tao, the law, the the teachings, the way things are. Um, The monastery welcomed everyone. The Buddhist texts begin, O nobly born, O you who are sons and daughters of the awakened ones. Remember your fundamental dignity. Remember your Buddha nature. Remember that you are free no matter where you are. Like Nelson Mandela walking out of prison with such a great sense of magnanimity and graciousness and freedom. You have that, no, they can put your body in prison, but no one can imprison your spirit. And so people were welcome, whatever race, whatever caste, whatever orientation, whatever nature you were, Ajahn Chah would say, we welcome you. The gates of the Dharma are open for you, for all beings. And that was a radical thing in a world that has as much racism and tribalism and, you know, the incredible suffering that comes from one group of people judging another group in some way or other, to have the Dharma say, no, everyone um, has a fundamental dignity and everyone has a fundamental capacity for freedom and please come and join us. And then the teachings, the Four Noble Truths, their suffering. That was actually rather revolutionary to hear. It's not like you've made a mistake you know, that your life is a mistake in some way or other. The first noble truth simply says that in part life is hard. Anybody not notice that? Raise your hand. I mean, it's also glorious and, and, you know, unbearably beautiful and wonderful, but with birth comes death. With praise also periodically comes blame. Perhaps you've noticed joy and sorrow, sweet and sour. Hot and cold, birth and death, gain and loss. Incarnation is woven in this way, so suffering's a part of it. Second noble truth, that there's a cause for the additional suffering that keeps you in bondage, and that is your grasping and attachments and, you know, holding on to the way that it's supposed to be rather than the graciousness of heart that is your own Buddha nature. And the third noble truth, that there's an end to suffering and that you can see it in any day or any moment. You can see ways that you're caught. And then there's that beautiful moment where you're totally caught in this story and somebody did something and he did and she did and I'm going to and whatever. And there's that, that little moment that happens and you notice, oh, really caught, aren't I? You know that moment? Really caught in that one. And it's as if you shift from the small sense of self, it's called the body of fear, to loving awareness that says, hmm, really got caught by that one, hooked in that one, really. Do I want to live there? Maybe I could let that go. The attachment, the fear, the opinion, the the whatever it is that's causing the suffering. And then you have nirvana. As Zen Master Suzuki says, when you realize the fact that everything changes, not the way you want it to be, but the way that it is, and find your composure in it, you find yourself in nirvana. So it's really that graciousness of heart 
that's where you become the Buddha and say, yes, this is the way human incarnation is, and let me respond to it, not with clinging and grasping and fear and confusion, but with loving awareness. Let me be the loving awareness. And then there's the path to it, the middle path, or the eightfold path, right, right livelihood, right speech, right action, and so forth, which mostly is not the way you're supposed to be. It's a prescription for happiness. If, you're, if you practice generosity, you become happier. If you practice integrity, you become happier. As I like to say, it's very hard to sit and meditate after a day of killing and stealing. It doesn't work terribly well. So if you speak what's truthful, if you act in ways that don't harm yourself or others, turns out you have a much happier, freer heart. So there were all these teachings, um, and not only were there the teachings, but then there were the trainings. Here's how you practice compassion over and over. Here's how you practice forgiveness. Here's how you practice loving kindness. Here's how you bring mindfulness to the body or to emotions or to the storytelling mind. You know the storytelling mind, right? You just sat for half an hour at, at a field day, right, telling you stories. And the point isn't that you stop the stories, but the point is that you take your seat in the midst of them all. This is from Bridget Lowry, because it's been so helpful to actually have a practice, a training to be present for the 10,000 joys and 10,000 sorrows. In the strange early evening half-light we sit, in the cloudiness of our questioning we sit, in our madness and our clarity we sit, in the midst of too much to do we sit, in the warm arms of our shared sorrow we sit, in community and in loneliness we sit, in sweet exhaustion we sit, in the blazing energy of being alive we sit, here with the singing coyotes and crows, with each electric bird song, with the rippling breezes and the dry grasses, here with the cobwebs and the moon and the muddy and dusty road upon us, us in the sounds and the sound in us, us in the world and the world in us. And I got so excited learning these teachings initially. I wanted to write everybody and call everybody and say, there's a way to live in which your heart can be free and gracious and at ease, and there's ways to learn to do this. And it's been preserved, passed on from warm hand to warm hand for so many generations by people, not just Buddhists, and you don't have to become a Buddhist, but just by people who become wise um, and awake to this mystery and awake to the rules or the, the laws, the Dharma, of how to navigate it. Because if you don't have this, you're like a road, like a boat without a rudder, and you just get thrown around the rapids because you don't have a way to steady your heart. You don't remember who you are, and you get lost in all the dramas of it. And of course, um, going on retreat is enormously helpful. It's beautiful to take classes and come and do that here is a wonderful thing. But there's something about sitting a week or ten days or a month or two months or however long. We have all these various retreats. And at first you sit and you're sleepy and you're restless and you're bored and you have the monkey mind. And the monkey mind was described by the Buddha, but the monkeys have moved into Spirit Rock and they're just waiting for you to come on retreat and show you, you know, their thing. And then you get the grief and the unfinished business of the heart, and you feel all the tension in your body, and you just sit with all that, like Bridget Lowry's poem, boredom and excitement and heartbreak and loss and, and possibility and longing and joy and all of those things. And then things start to open. And I like to talk about seeing the faces of people at the end of the retreat, the, we call it the Vipassana facelift, right? Where there's the sense of people look 10 years younger. They do. And they walk around, you know, and you see them walking um, sometimes a little weird, looking slowly, whatever. But it's like they're a kid again, you know, and they're down by the, 
you know, flowers at the front of the dining hall. Or um, I remember a few years ago leading this two-month retreat, and there's a woman who came in who was really upset um, by a guy who was sitting near her in the meditation hall. He was an old Marine with a lot of those Marine-type tattoos and gear and things like that. And also he smoked, so he sort of smelled a little of his smoking habit and various things like that. And he kind of represented what both she didn't like and also actually what scared her in some way, the aggression of the masculine. And yeah, she had a whole story that she'd made up. Um, and when she'd come in the hall, she'd sort of move to a different place and protect herself because he represented something for her. Um, we hired him too, but that's another story. <laughs> anyway, um, when, you, when you sit with yourself, you get to see all your projections and all the stuff that happens. But anyway, the last week of the two months of silence that people are on retreat, we have an integration period. And she came in to me one day and she said, um, it's okay now. And I said, what's okay? You know, because I see a lot of people. She said, well, I saw him, him, oh, the Marine, yes. He was down on the stream bed by the dining hall where the new spring flowers are, and he was cupping the flowers and smelling them, and I realized he wasn't who I thought he was at all. You know. Later I saw them having a nice chat, you know. So what happens when you go on retreat is you see all the structures of judgment and thoughts and things that you cling to, because they display themselves, and you begin to trust more and more the loving awareness itself, that you can be present for this, that you can tolerate. The neuroscientists speak of the window of tolerance growing, that you can tolerate the level of grief, you know, and the loneliness um, and the beauty of life and the mystery of it and the longing and the fear and the terror and all those things. And sometimes you feel like you're dying, and so come in and tell the teacher, I feel like I'm dying. The basic instruction is, well, sit there, you could name it, dying, dying, and then see what happens. But I feel like I'm really dying, 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 dying. I wonder what they're going to have for lunch, right? Because the mind has no pride, and you die for a little while, and then it comes back again, and it haunts you with, you know... And there's a kind of coming home that happens because you start to realize that who you are is not the stories or the fears or the confusion, that they're part of the mind, nor are you the, you know, gorgeous, glorious things. Those happen too, and your body can become filled with rapture and you can dissolve into light, and that's all kind of wonderful. Temporary, but quite wonderful, you know, but then you come back and what's for lunch? I mean, because you're a human being. Right? And you go home and they don't want you to be talking about the light so much they want you to take out the garbage, right? And pay the bills or whatever it happens to be. But, um, but there's something that happens as one allows oneself to take this seat in meditation, even as we did for this time this evening, where you begin to trust your capacity of loving-kindness and compassion and awareness. And it becomes lovely, this lovely space, not so much you, but the space of awareness itself. You are loving awareness. And you become the witnessing of this life in, in a way that the whole sense of self, of who you think you are, kind of opens to something much greater. And you know this. It's not like this is some foreign concept. Um, it's really mysterious. You got born in this human body. Eyes and ears and senses and consciousness that modern psychology has not a clue about. Not a clue. All kinds of cool research about the brain and stuff. Consciousness, not what you are, actually. Consciousness is what makes life, but they haven't figured out a way to study that yet. 
And so you begin to trust. And for me, it allowed me, I mean, yes, I did practices sitting in the charnel grounds with um, making prayers when people's bodies were being burned and doing reflections on death, because monks are supposed to do that. Helps you get wise. And there I was then able to come back and sit with people in hospice and not be so afraid, or sit with my parents when they died, you know. And in the end, you realize that what matters is love. Can you be present? Can you show up with an intimacy and a presence and a love? And that love might take the form of creativity, of having children, of making a, a creative business, of creating a piece of art or music or, or whatever. But underneath it is the love itself. In the end, what really matters. I live for hundreds of thousands of years as a mineral, says Rumi. Then I died and was reborn as a plant. I lived as a plant for thousands of years and became an animal. Then I lived again and again and became a human being. What have I ever lost by dying? Or Thich Nhat Hanh who writes... What is his phrase? He says, um, you are a cloud, you are a spade full of soil. This is not poetry, this is science. You know that rain cloud fills the lakes around Mount Tamalpais to become MMWD water or that fills Het Hetchy and goes down to San Francisco, and then you drink it and it becomes you. I mean, who do you think you are? Your body is made of all this stuff of the earth, the clouds and the soil, and then it's inhabited by spirit. So all this sounds really cool, right? Sounds really good, inspiring. Mm. And what helps with it couple things to add. What helps is having good friends. I had colleagues from the beginning who'd studied and practiced and being able to teach in, in, in teams um, was uh, enormously helpful and a kind of a safeguard because it's actually easy to get inflated in this role. Everybody's sitting and looking at you and so forth. And then you may have noticed that in a lot of the Buddhist and Hindu and, well, we could go on to the Catholic Church and the, you know, various other religious traditions, <clears throat> that there have been um, some uh, problems <laughs> with leadership um, abusing their power in various ways and so forth. And one of the great blessings in spiritual life is having good friends. I've had them as colleagues, so we help keep each other straight. If somebody was kind of going off the rails a little bit, Say, hey, are you, are you, sure, are you sure you want to be doing that? That doesn't look so good. Um, and someone asked, uh, Ananda, the Buddha's cousin, asked at one point to him, he said, it seems to me that half of the holy life, of spiritual life, is having good friends. Spiritual friends support you and remind you. And the Buddha said, not so, Ananda. He said, the, the whole of the holy life is association with the noble, with the good friends and noble thoughts and noble practices. Um, the whole of the holy life is that communion uh, with the Dharma. Hey, Sean, would you turn on the um, air? That would be good. Thank you. Um, so another thing that's really made a difference for me and for so many people who have undertaken a path of practice is to have both a place to practice and to have friends, sangha, community. Because well, when we lose it, somebody else reminds us. And I, I've been reminded as much by all the people who come on retreats. And the level of courage um, and the, the beauty of um, people's devotion to awakening or genuineness, I see over and over again. I mean, I think of myself being up there on retreat and there was a woman in the community whose teenage daughter had died. And she was on the retreat a year afterward um, over the anniversary of her daughter's death. So it was a really a 
tough kind of grief-filled time. And the day came, and I talked with her, and I said, why don't you do a little ritual? I said, um, this morning while we're sitting quietly, why don't you go out um, at the time you know that your daughter died and ring the bell 108 times, the great big bell that's up there, which is a traditional way of paying respects or honor. 108 is a kind of mystical or sacred number in India. Um, one and eight makes nine, and nine is three times three, and I won't go through the numerology, but it means everything included. Brahma, Vishnu, Shiva, the beginning, the middle, and the end of things, all kinds of stuff like that. But anyway, ring the bell 108 times in her honor. I just said that to her, so I picked some time today. And so we're all sitting in there, meditating, and all of a sudden, I hear her ringing this bell right outside the meditation hall. And people have been quiet for a long, long time. And she was really hitting that bell as if the sound of it could somehow reach her daughter. And usually we have the bells to begin or end sittings or call people together. So people were kind of wondering, what's happening? And I said, in the middle of the sitting, I said, the bell you're hearing is because someone's child has died a year ago and a year ago today, and she wants to honor her. And you heard this woman ring the bell, and everybody else was sitting there listening with tears streaming down their cheeks as if she was somehow needing to talk to her daughter's spirit. You know, and then she came back and sat with us. And there's just so much dignity, people who've lost their jobs or been betrayed and have to figure out how to forgive or gone through some kind of, you know, illness or treatment or, or started a new business or about to get married and say, I'm going to make bodhisattva vows part of my marriage ceremony, where people take the teachings into their own heart in their own way and learn to live them and embody them. And I get inspired as much by that as anything. But... There's no enlightened retirement, you know. So, what can I say? Um, I was married for 30 years and thought I'd be married for the rest of my life. Um, I've now been separated for more than five years and um, that was a really difficult period for me, you know. And for my ex-wife, she just said in terms of her wanting to end it, we have different needs. Um, and now, five years later, I'm in a new relationship with a, a, another teacher, Trudy Goodman, that I have tremendous joy and happiness. But it's not how I planned it at all. And you go, oh, meditation teachers don't get divorced, right? You know how to work stuff out. <laughs> yeah, sometimes, sometimes. Or when I got really sick about five years ago, and I had this whole neurological thing where I passed out in front of a whole group of people and was unconscious for a long time and again, and then all kinds of tremors and things, and they tried to figure out what was wrong. Never did quite figure it out, actually. But now I'm better, mostly. They didn't. Um, but I got a misdiagnosis of something like ALS, initially. They said, well, this is happening quickly. Your body is deteriorating, and with it, the thing that we think you have also will include dementia and you have less than a year to live. And I freaked out a bit from that. I got pretty nervous. I was talking to Ramdas about it. He said, oh yeah, I flunked the course a few times, right? Because um, I thought I was chill with all this. I've sat with corpses, I've done hospice work, you know, but then something in my body said, wait, dementia? We're not, you know, I don't, don't, don't think so, you know? I hope not. Anyway, and then I remember this passage from Lama Yeshe. Where are you, Lama Yeshe? Let me see if I can find you. Lama Yeshe was one of the most loving, gracious, wisest lamas to come and teach in the West. He did in the 60s and 70s um, and started a huge retreat center for Westerners in Nepal and Kopan. Many, many people started practicing with him. Um, not only revered, but just really a cool guy, a wonderful, gracious man. But he had a bad heart, and one day he had a heart attack, um, serious, and was hospitalized. And he wrote a private letter 
that later he showed some folks to another lama. He said, never have I known the experiences and suffering which attended my stay in intensive care. Due to powerful medicines, unending injections, oxygen tubes to breathe, my mind was overcome with pain and confusion. I realized that it's extremely difficult to maintain awareness without becoming confused during the stages before death. At its worst, 41 days after I became ill, the condition of my body was such that I became the lord of a cemetery. My mind was like that of an anti-god, and my speech like the barking of an old mad dog. My ability to recite prayers and meditate degenerated, so I had to seriously consider what to do. I began to do stabilizing meditation and bring mindfulness to the very circumstances I was in. I did compassion practice for myself. And gradually, day by day, I developed a stillness, an immeasurable joy, and a great happiness again has filled my heart and mind. The strength of mind has increased, my problems have lessened, but it was not an easy passage. And I guess I read it just so that um, we're being honest. Uh, and the honest thing is that, um, first of all, the body doesn't want to die. Even if your mind is pretty relaxed about it, the body wants to hold on. It does. You'll see. Um, and that every human life has this measure of um, joys and difficulties. And the practice isn't to perfect your life or perfect your personality or perfect your body. It's to perfect your love. Even through the things where, as Zen Master Ryokan, the great Japanese poet, wrote, last year a foolish monk, this year no change. <laughs> Even through the things that are repeated and difficult, and you go, oh my God, I'm stuck in that one again, you know. Maybe it's time to give that one up, right? But there comes somehow a deepening sense of trust and a deepening sense of joy and capacity, not only for yourself, but really for the whole world. You know, because one of the other things that I've been able to somehow receive the blessings of is being engaged with and connected with activists around the world who are working to uh, bring peace in areas of great conflict, bring food to people who are hungry, to stop the terrible kinds of injustices that we see within our society or elsewhere. Um, and they need practice too, the activists. And, and I join them and I've worked in Burma or in Israel and Palestine or prisons or things like that. You actually, you know, people who devote themselves, and half this room is full of people who do something in that way, or maybe the whole room, each in your own way. But you also need some, some deeper perspective to have, or you get caught in your outrage, or you get caught in your ideas about the way the world should be. Remember that story that I told recently several times of Gary Snyder, the great environmentalist, who's now 84 and was interviewed by Wes Nisker, one of our teachers, um, this last year. And Gary, who's Pulitzer Prize winner, um, great poet and an environmentalist for 50 years since the Earth household in the 50s and 60s. And, okay, Gary, what do you say to us now that there's global warming? and climate disruption and the loss of species and all the things you've been warning us about and writing about for so many years with such passion. Do you have any advice for us? And he looked back and he said, don't feel guilty. That was his advice. Don't feel guilty. If you're going to save the world, save it because you love it and not out of your guilt and not out of your anger and not out of your outrage because that's part of what actually polarizes it and makes it worse. And the only force that really can combat the forces of greed and hatred and ignorance and people who aren't afraid to kill people is the force of people who aren't afraid to love. And if you're going to save it, love it. And I start to see in the activists that I work with in the places that I go that it takes a stout heart 
but it also takes this great perspective of wisdom. Um, don't feel guilty, but tend it. It is your garden. You are loving awareness, and then you're given this gift of life. And what seeds will you plant? And to, to begin to meditate is really a coming home to remember, who am I really? What do I want to make of this life? First, can I find a, a spaciousness of heart and mind that can tolerate human incarnation? You can. Sit like a Buddha. And then it said in Zen, there are only two things. You sit and you sweep the garden. And it doesn't matter how big the garden is. You quiet the mind. You open the heart. You remember that you're loving awareness, that you have this gift of life. And then you get up with the rake and the broom and you go out into the garden of the world and you garden. You plant beautiful seeds. So many more stories I could tell, but I think you've listened enough. Poem from Mary Oliver, one of our great mystic voices. I would like to write a poem about the world that has in it nothing fancy, but it seems impossible. Whatever the subject, the morning sun glimmers it, the tulip feels the heat and flaps its petals open and becomes a star. The ants bore into the peony bud and there is the dark pinprick well of sweetness. As for the stones on the beach, forget it. Each one could be set in gold. So I tried with my eyes shut, but of course the birds were singing and the aspen trees were shaking the sweetest music out of their leaves. And that was followed by Guess what? A momentous and beautiful silence as comes to all of us in little earfuls if we're not too hurried to hear it. As for spiders, how the dew hangs in their webs even if they say nothing or seem to say nothing. So fancy is the world, who knows, maybe they sing. So fancy is the world, who knows, Maybe the stars sing too, and the ants, and the peonies, and the warm stones, so happy to be where they are on the beach instead of being locked up in gold. There's such a kind of respect and tenderness in the poem and in the attention, the loving awareness that we cultivate and embody and manifest as we practice. And there's almost nothing else that you can do that invites this. I mean, there's all kinds of work to be done and beautiful work and engaged in and things to tend to, but just to stop. I was so appreciating the silence before the Dharma teaching tonight, just that here's this whole room of people and the Bay Area doing nothing. Hallelujah. You know? Oh my gosh. And listening, not just doing nothing, but doing something very deep in that nothing. Listening to the vast, timeless turning of the stars and the silence and the breathing of your body and the beating of your heart. And maybe when we listen in that way to ourselves, maybe hopefully as a species, we can also learn to really listen to one another because it's about time, isn't it? You know, on this world, on this earth. So let's sit. <coughs>
you are loving awareness itself. And the freedom of heart and the great heart of compassion are who you really are. Open-handed, wonderful, inviting. Take the time to sit, to remember. It is the sweet oil that eases the hinge so you can go into the garden of your heart. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.